0: Our second lesson this morning is a reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter one, verses 18 to 31. Listen for the word of the Lord. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided, through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, greets, desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The year is 1613, Europe is in disarray. It is the era of absolute monarchy where kings and queens rule by divine right. The Reformation is less than a century old. It has splintered the church, pitting rulers, nations, communities, families against each other in brutal civil wars that in the course of a century will kill 10 million people. In Linz of present-day Austria, 41-year-old Johannes Kepler is trying to rebuild his life. Johannes is a scientist, a Christian, and a father. He is a devoted Protestant Lutheran, and yet for the past decade, he has served the Holy Roman and Emperor in Prague as the imperial mathematician, offering astrological advice while conducting his own scientific research. In Prague, Johannes discovered mathematical and geometrical patterns in the locations of the planets. They're known as Kepler's laws of planetary motion. And they had a huge influence on science. Kepler's laws predicted the future planetary motion so perfectly that they eventually led to the acceptance that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of the solar system, overturning the geocentric model that had persisted for thousands of years. Kepler's laws were essential elements of Newton's theory of gravity, and the method by which they were developed, relying on observational data, laid the framework for the scientific revolution and modern empirical science. But in 1613, Johannes was struggling. Over the past two years, his family had been struck with illness. His wife became ill with seizures, All three of his children contracted smallpox. His six-year-old son died. A year later, his wife passed away. The emperor's abdication put his job in jeopardy. And to top it off, following a series of disagreements with Lutheran church leaders, in which Kepler had argued for tolerance and unity within the fractured Protestant church, he was excommunicated from the church that he loved. I have known about Kepler's contributions to science since about high school, but I only learned about his life and his core beliefs more recently when I read Aviva Rothman's book, The Pursuit of Harmony, Kepler on Cosmos, Confession, and Community. Drawing on his writings and correspondence, Rothman shows that Kepler was driven by a complex individual view of harmony as the essence of God's plan. Moreover, as the way to face uncertainty, to reconcile differences, and ultimately, he thought, to save the world. How do we handle uncertainty in our faith? Can we truly embrace it? For sure. We're less transfixed by the doctrinal differences that fractured the church in the 16th century. But our church still struggles to embrace differences and uncertainty. For example, how does our faith inform our understanding of the gift of life, particularly regarding the future life of a fetus or the life and the rights of a mother, if these two become in conflict? What theological principles can resolve such a conflict? Now as then, impassioned disagreements over issues like this drive us apart. But the arguments often obscure the deep uncertainties that many of us share about our faith, such as, if God is omnipotent, then why must the innocent suffer? Is our faith right? Even if we are right, what about those who are raised in another tradition? Are they condemned? When we make a mistake, what can or should we do to make amends? Without satisfactory answers, it is tempting to set these questions aside. But too often, we miss the importance of asking the questions nonetheless, and truly facing the uncertainty that they present to us. After all, these are the questions that our children ask us as they come to understand the world, question their place in it, question the role of faith in their lives. These are the questions that prevent people from engaging in the church in the first place or in the second place, if they found unsatisfactory answers from earlier church experiences. Among the most confounding is the question of free will. Do we have it? Our moral judicial social code is predicated on the assumption that we do. And hence that people are responsible for their actions, which can be judged to be good or to be bad. And yet the Bible is filled with sp- statements that question that assumption. The Old Testament is unambiguous. God chooses specific people for specific purposes. Jesus tells his disciples that I chose you out of the world. And he predicts specific future events like Judas's betrayal, Peter's threefold denial. Following this line of thought, John Calvin believed in predestination. He argued that it is intrinsic to scripture and a natural consequence of a sovereign, omnipotent God. Calvin was more interested in the sovereignty of God than in predestination. He believed people are responsible for their actions, but nonetheless, The implications of predestination remain hard to stomach for many people. The author and thinker C.S. Lewis was one of these. His objection to predestination was based on his uncertainty on the concept of time. He thought, if God exists outside time, then the concept of free will becomes meaningless since there are no reactions, consequences, or effects. There are only actions. Lewis wrote, This is a long quote. I suspect it is really a meaningless question. The difference between freedom and necessity is fairly clear on the bodily level. We know the difference between making our teeth chatter and just finding them chattering due to the cold. It begins to become less clear, however, when we talk of human love. Do I like him because I choose or because I must? There are cases where this has an answer, but others where it seems to me to mean nothing. When we carry it up to relations between God and man, has the distinction perhaps become nonsensical? After all, when we are most free, it is only with a freedom God has given us. And when our will is most influenced by grace, it is still our will. And if our will does is not voluntary, And if voluntary does not mean free, then what are we talking about? I'd leave it all alone. Scripture also contributes to the uncertainty about certainty. In today's Old Testament reading, God is prosecuting a case against God's own chosen people who have turned away to worship other gods. Again, God demands to know Oh my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. It is as if God is dealing with an unpredictable and ungrateful teenager whom God clearly loves, but for whom God is afraid and uncertain about the future. What does modern science have to say on the question of free will? Skipping ahead from the 17th century to the turn of the 20th the scientific revolution had yielded general theories of gravity and motion, electricity, magnetism, light, and temperature. By the 1890s, it seemed that empiricism had succeeded in uncovering the rules of the universe. This confidence, or hubris, led Lord Kelvin to declare in 1897 that, quote, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurements. Oh my. (laughs) If only Kelvin had recalled Paul's reminder about what God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the discerning I will thwart. Within a decade of Kelvin's bold statement, a patent clerk by the name of Albert Einstein discovered that Newton's laws are merely a special case of a much more general property of time and space. Einstein also proposed that in order to understand some funny experiments about the interactions of light with electrons and materials, one needed to believe that light consists of individual packets rather than continuous waves. This led to the theory of quantum mechanics, which continues to generate mysteries and to support the careers of people like me to the present day. Today, Some of our deepest truths of science and mathematics speak directly of uncertainty. Kurt Gödel's famous incompleteness theorem from 1931 essentially states that, we know that there exist mathematical truths that can never be proved. That's it for a minute. We know things are true that can never be proved. In physics, Quantum theory implies that nature is intrinsically not deterministic. No description of the universe, no matter how precise, can perfectly predict future events. Moreover, quantum physics implies that events can be linked in complex ways across time and across space. And hence, no description of our local universe is complete. In modern cosmology, we know that 95% of the universe is made of stuff, dark matter and dark energy, that we don't understand at all. Although it is easy to get caught up in a feeling that modern science can and has explained almost everything, it's crucial to remember that at these deep levels, science mainly speaks to us about what we do not know and even more about what we can never know. In other words, the certainty of uncertainty. What does all this mean for our faith? Personally, I take some comfort in these scientific conundrums. Quantum physics implies that nature at least is not predetermined. To the extent that we are embedded and subject to nature's laws, neither are we predetermined. We are not machines simply ticking away in a clockwork universe. Perhaps, and this is what I believe, God exists within that uncertainty. God can influence our thoughts and our feelings without breaking any natural laws. This also means that physics has no answer for the spiritual question of predeterminism. We are free to believe Calvin or Lewis or anyone else whose perspective speaks to us on the matter. Embracing uncertainty in one's life is far harder than philosophizing about free will. Many of you know, my family has navigated a difficult road in the past few years, as we have faced the consequences of divorce. Relationships that I believe to be sustaining, promises I believe to be unbreakable, turned out not to be so. For me, the overwhelming uncertainty of living within an unravelling marriage has given way to a welcome relief in the certainty of being able to move ahead and build a new life. That opportunity is nonetheless filled with more uncertainty. And meanwhile, my children, Silas and Simeon, have needed to adapt to their new family life, even though they have limited understanding why they must tread this road little control over it. Sometimes I see their pain, I feel responsible for it, I'm helpless to prevent it. We all face such times, times when we succumb, crying into the dark, desperate for some assurance of what we can trust, why we should trust it, nothing seems to be certain. What can we make of such situations? In my better moments, often sitting in these pews listening to the words of someone wiser than myself, I know it is only by embracing the unknown that I can learn and only by embracing uncertainty that I can grow. Challenging times jolt us from complacency And they force us to face the consequences of our actions. Remorse, repentance, personal resolve to learn and grow. These have all been key elements of my own journey. Experiences of adversity can bring us closer together and closer to God. In acknowledging and accepting our own limitations, we learn to forgive. We learn to move on. 410 years ago, another 41-year-old man was at a crossroads. Having lost his child, his wife, his church, his job, Johannes Kepler moved his family to a new city and he started again. He remarried. He had six more children. He resumed his astronomical and philosophical work. Six years later, he published Harmoniques Mundi, which he viewed as his greatest accomplishment. In it, he proposed a theory of natural harmony to unify music, mathematics, geometry, astronomy, and ultimately as a means for human society to be saved by embracing the peaceful coexistence of different views. Perhaps the idea that a mathematical theory can dispel human suffering is naive, but I think the concept of harmony as a path to peaceful life is transcendent. We must honor differences in the present and embrace uncertainty about the future. We can draw comfort amidst uncertainty in the familiar celestial rhythms, of the turning of a new year, the passing from Advent and Christmas, into ordinary time, the growing season, before we enter into Lent. Kepler believed that the music of the spheres was a choir of heavenly bodies. A real choir, with Saturn and Jupiter as the bases, Mars a tenor, Earth and Venus were altos, and Mercury, the lone soprano. He thought that their harmonies resonated with the human soul. If that is so, they're singing a long song. Saturn's orbital period is 29 years. So it's only sung a few notes between Kepler's time and ours. Perhaps the juiciest chords are still to come. Meanwhile, our faith gives us a foundation from which to grow. And it tells us what we can ultimately trust. God's mercy, our salvation, and our support for each other.